Welcome. Hello there. Or should I say, Croissant. <laughs> Croissant, Dan. Or indeed, hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're talking Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> we're in Wales this week. Um, Not physically, but in spiritually. Spirit. Land of our fathers. Land of your fathers. No. Mother. <laughs> land of my mother, actually. And land of me, as it turns out. Yes. Um, I was born in Swansea. Yeah. Down there in Swansea, South Wales. Um, not as nice as it sounds from the name. Swansea. A yeah. Sea of Swans. Sea of Swans. But actually, it's sea more of, a sea of oh, industry and pollution. Pollution. <laughs> Shopping trolleys. <laughs> um, but still the birthplace of... Um, Catherine Zeta-Jones, mm-hmm. um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. <laughs> former Archbishop <laughs> former. of Canterbury. <laughs> Erstwhile, Archbishop of Canterbury. Rest in peace. Um, Anthony Hopkins is from down the oh, road there. I didn't there know he was a Welshman. In Port Talbot. Just a bit, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit. Um, a little one Easter egg for, for you, probably mm. of no interest to the listeners whatsoever. <laughs> uh, another Swansea man, a man by the name of Bo Nash. Oh, yes. Now... The reason we might find Bo Nash interesting is because we grew up in Bath. Yeah. And Bo Nash is a famous name in Bath. He was the, um, his title was, he was the Master of Ceremonies in right. Bath, which was like a job back in the day. Yeah. In the, we're talking 18th century. Um, so he would like oversee, when Bath became a big like society place, he was like, Decided who was in and who was out. Yeah, he was kind of an influential figure. Uh, there's at least one pub named after him in Bath, yeah, I can think there of. Is. And I think the building that the comedia, the comedy club mm. is in, is called the Bonash, the ah. Bonash building. Yeah, there's probably a few streets um, as well, isn't there? But the, I learned a really great Bonash fact that uh, when I was reading about him earlier, which I'd like to I'd like to tell you. Mm, please. Um, when he, when Bonash separated from his mistress, Juliana Popjoy... <laughs> She was so distraught, she swore to never sleep in a bed again <laughs> and lived instead in a hollowed out tree a mile outside of Warminster. <laughs> no. So this is the effect that men from Swansea have on women. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I know that you have that same effect. Well, how, how many women in the southwest are living in trees to this day? Well, exactly, yeah. Um, Another famous Swansea man, probably the most famous actually, poet Dylan Thomas. Yes. Um, who we probably could have covered on the Top Boozers episode, mm. or could in episode two. Episode two, yeah, part two. Part two. Or could we? <laughs> oh. <laughs> because um, it turns out there's a bit of historical... So the, the story goes with Dylan Thomas, he died, he was 39, he died in New York, mm-hmm. um, and he was, he's, you know, this stereotypical sort of doomed alcoholic yes. poet. And Morose, sad man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tortured genius. And the story goes that he was in the, um, he was drinking in the White Horse Tavern, New York. And then he goes back to the Chelsea Hotel. It's all pretty rock and roll so far. And he says, he, he brags, I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's the record. <laughs> Next day, coma, <laughs> death. Right. However, um, new evidence came to light, this was in, well, actually the first thing was in 2004, where um, it was, some notes were found from his doctor, um, which basically intimated that um, 
According, as far as his doctor thought, anyway, he only ever drank about four or five drinks at a time. So, medically, he probably had a, a perfectly functioning liver. Yeah, well, it was found like that they did like another sort of a re- retrospective, you know, post mortem, mm. how you describe it. Um, and they said he had, I think he had asthma, emphysema, um, bronchitis, and pneumonia at the time when he died. So it's probably a combination of factors. Yeah. There's also, um, apparently at that time in New York, this was in, this was in 1953, there were still rules about every bar apparently had to keep a record of what had come out of each bottle that was sold. Mm, yeah. And so based on that, they think the evidence suggests he may have had at the most eight whiskeys, not 18. Well, which that's is, not enough to kill a man. Obviously a lot, but it's not enough to kill a man, probably. No. Maybe a man who's got the elements of, you know, emphysema, bronchitis, etc. Might be well, tipped over the edge by depends, a particularly heavy. Depends on how many whiskies he had beforehand. And how big was the whiskey? And the brown horse tavern. <laughs> yeah. How big was the whiskey? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's the second person you've called out back to back in uh, in as many weeks. You've attacked last Dylan week. Thomas, and last week you were attacking Mimi Sheraton. Oh yeah. <laughs> of, esteemed uh, food critic of the New York Times. <laughs> so watch out, uh, people of the past. Yeah. Uh, coming Dan's coming for you. <laughs> you ain't gonna sue me. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, on the topic of booze. Yes. Well, there's there's another famous uh, man, Welshman, who we've mentioned on, friend of the show, we've mentioned before uh, in an American episode, who is of Welsh descent, and that's a little man, old Uncle Jack Daniel. Yep. <laughs> Uncle Jack. Uncle Jack. He obviously actually wasn't Welsh himself. He was from Tennessee. Um, he and might have done to that. take a wife. <laughs> Did not ever take a wife. For reasons that are unknown, um, <laughs> and please do when not sue us. <laughs> please do not listen to our American episode uh, at Jack Daniels Incorporated. Yeah. Um, but his father, his grandfather, sorry, was Joseph Job Daniel, was from Aberystwyth in Wales. Um, we are not, however, drinking Jack Daniel today, but we're drinking something that is actually Welsh. Um, yeah. Black Mountain. Yep. Yeah, get much more Welsh than the Black Mountains. Yeah. So, how did you get hold of this? Uh, well, this Black Mountain. This was a gift to me from um, your friend and mine, and very much friend of the podcast, Ollie Walton. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it was a gift on my 21st birthday, which means it's been in my cupboard for 11 years, um, unopened, almost to the day, <laughs> oh, yeah. unopened. Although, as you noticed, quite a lot of it seems to have disappeared mm. uh, from the top the angel yeah. share the we'll angel share um which leads to fears the bottle may not be properly sealed <laughs> <laughs> however um yeah it doesn't have any dates on it or anything i mean it's 30 percent so it's probably, it's probably, it's probably fine. right and if not you know we'll have something else to talk about on there yeah and it's a deep black color like a you know sambuca or a jägermeister yeah. um but it's essentially it's a welsh uh liqueur made with uh brandy and uh, mixed with apples and blackcurrant. Yeah. Um, so it's the colour of a black sambuca with the, um, or a Cafe Patron, RIP, mm. with the flavour of what can only be described as a Ribena, really. Yeah, it's, it's very pleasant. The uh, the spiel on the box says um, it's derived from an old March's recipe um, using the bountiful fruits of the Wye and Usk Valleys. Which is, and then there's a long tradition of these kind of drinks in that region of Wales. Um, and in this Black Mountain liqueur, they've used the traditional recipe favoured by Granny Russell, uh, 
It doesn't elaborate on who yeah. she is, but that she spent a lifetime planting, growing, and brewing in the best traditional practices of the region. Well, I looked into Granny Russell. Mm. Um, there's no record of her whatsoever. Right. She's got no digital <laughs> footprint whatsoever, so we'll have to say the word for her on that one. But um, pretty good. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll pour we some out. It, ta- it, it smells, smells terrible. Smells terrible. Um, that might be because it's gone. Uh, it's been sat in a bottle for it tastes a fine. decade, but it, it, but it tastes fantastic. I think it's very 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 tasty. Serving suggestions are either neat over ice or with tonic on the website. But I also notice on the box there's some uh, some lovely sounding cocktails such as Black Mountain High, uh, the Sundowner, Honeymoon. Cincher and the uh, love it. So love it. If you have a oh yeah, exactly love it. So yeah. <laughs> would recommend for anyone who wants to try a Welsh drink. Don't be put off by the smell. Yeah. And, and Wales itself has some interesting uh, history when it comes to alcohol in general. Um, they've got some interesting facts here. So. Uh, in the beer world, primarily, um, obviously given that, you know, the British Isles are beer heavy, it's not suitable really for growing any kind of uh, wine-based drinks. But in the beer world, uh, Wales has a, has a very long tradition. So um, Wrexham Lager, which you may have heard of, um, is now a sponsor actually for Wrexham Football Club, which is very famous sure. uh, yeah. because of Ryan Reynolds hey, and... Rob McElrenny took it over, but they uh, Wrexham Lager is Britain's oldest um, lager that's still in production. So prior to kind of the 1800s, most beer in the in Britain was kind of ale types. Mm-hmm. But when they realised how they could make lager, uh, Wrexham Lager was one of the first, and it's the long the only one from that period that's still going. What year? Did you uh, it was 1882. Right, um, and it's. So popular that it's at uh, the time um, that it's believed that it was stocked on the Titanic. Um, so Wales, a Welsh lager made it all the way as far as the bottom of the Maybe that's why it hit the iceberg. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Cap'n, old Cap'n was had a few cracks and lagers. Yeah, potentially. Um, and there's also evidence of it being drunk by British soldiers at the Siege of Khartoum in 1885. Ooh. Wow, that's cool. So, yeah, it was very popular uh, in its day and is, well, booming off the back of its uh, connection to the football club, I think, these days. Uh, Wales is also home to, um, uh, yes, uh, the Felin Foyle. Foyle. Don't, don't quote me on the pronunciation of these ones. <laughs> <laughs> brewery, uh, which in 1935 was the first brewery outside of the USA to create a canned beer. Um, so putting the beer in the can for the oh, first time, which okay. is obviously now ubiquitous and what, you know probably the, the primary way many people drink beer. Yeah. Uh, actually, well, certainly in a European context, started in Wales. Brilliant. And the final and most spurious beer fact I have... Um, about Wales is have you ever heard of a little drink called Guinness yeah well uh, not to be outdone by their friends over the Irish Sea uh, the Welsh have laid claim to uh, having invented Guinness what <laughs> <laughs> even though uh, it was obviously made by Arthur Guinness who was very much uh, an Irishman um, the, the kind of the traditional history of, of Guinness is that 
Arthur Guinness first kind of found dark beer when he was working in London um, on the shipping docks and uh, was drinking porter-style beer with the porters down at the uh, port. Um, and he took that style of beer over to Dublin where he was, he had, a, he had a brewery and he made kind of a dark Irish beer that's obviously now wow. what we know as Guinness. But the Welsh have said he couldn't possibly have, have done that. <laughs> and that actually it was as he was travelling home from London that he sampled a dark beer in a Welsh pub and then sailed back over to Dublin and stole their recipe for dark beer and wow. sold it to uh, to the Irish. So... Somewhat spurious. I think probably a bit of both has been many of these things. Maybe he was in fact Welsh and his his name wasn't Arthur Guinness. It was in fact Arthur Guinness. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Arthur Guinness. Something to think about. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've got a Welsh beer fact. Mm. Brains, which uh, is a big brewery over there, the beloved of my granddad, my Tide, as we called him, Mm. uh, is the... Largest independent brewery in the UK. That's a very good fact. Another fact for you. Yeah. Uh, I went to Pembrokeshire a few years back and I did a road, uh, there's a walking trail there called the Golden Road, which supposedly, once upon a time, went stretched all the way, obviously via the sea, to the Wicklow Up Mountains in mm. Ireland, and um, which is where there was gold, gold mines. Yeah. And um, also, supposedly, it's in the Priscelli, Hill, <laughs> Priscelli Hills and they think they may have taken the stones from Stonehenge all the way from there to Wiltshire. Wow. Uh, but there's a pub in a village, I think the village is called Rosebush, believe it or not, um, called Tafan Zinc, mm. which is a tavern made of zinc, entirely of zinc. What? <laughs> it's, I don't think it actually is zinc, but it's like, it's made of all corrugated metal, oh. um, just put together, painted red, and it's a little pub. Nice. Yeah. yeah sounds great. Worth a look. Yeah. Um, so we've covered off Welsh alcohol. <laughs> um, how about Welsh food? Yes. Um, probably, well, the most famous dish. Turns out, actually, I was looking into what the national dish is considered mm. to be. Is a thing called cow. Yes. Spelled like we would say call, probably. Mm. I think it's pronounced cow. Um, which is a stew with like lamb. And seasonal veg, like leeks, turnip, yeah. whatever you've got, potatoes. Um, but in the north of Wales, there's also known as lobscouse, and it's the same thing as scouse, which, which is the stew which scousers are named. Yeah, we're famous in Liverpool for. So we're not so they're not so far removed from the English pig dogs. After all. <laughs> <laughs> Welsh. Um, but they put, does scouse does scouse have lamb in it, or is it different? It might be is it beef or lamb? Yeah, or so lamb? maybe the Welsh have taken it or adapted it to. Obviously, they've got a lot of sheep in Wales. They've got yeah. four sheep for every human. Is uh, that the stat? That's the stat. That's, that is good. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Um, and they make very delicious lamb. We won't, we won't speculate too much <laughs> about that. But, um, yeah, but I would say the thing that I thought would be the national dish of Wales mm. is Welsh rarebit. Yes. Or, as it's also known, cheese on toast. Yeah, it's one of the... It's probably one of the few Welsh dishes that is common outside of Wales. Like it's it's everywhere Welsh rabbit, so it's like classic British pub staple. Yeah, it's true. Actually, um, yeah. Whereas you know things like call and some of the other things we'll probably discuss, or cow and some of the other things that we'll discuss aren't really at that common mm. outside of Wales. Yeah, true. Um, so yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Um, also interesting is the etymology of Welsh rabbit. Mm. 
Um, yeah. Rabbit doesn't really exist as a word in any other context apart from as a Welsh rabbit. Yeah. It's not, yeah. So it was, it was a corruption, supposedly, of rabbit, Welsh rabbit. And um, first references, first recorded references, 1725. Um, and it's thought that it was a jocular insult on the part of the English towards the Welsh um, by saying, well, this is um, how I've... Right, read this. Um, it, was, it was probably intended to be a jocular insult towards the Welsh on the part of the English as follows. Welsh was probably used as a pejorative dysphemism. Dysphemism meaning a term used to insult people. Oh, okay. Meaning, quote, anything substandard or vulgar. So you say something was Welsh, it would be yeah. it's substandard or it's vulgar. Yeah. And suggesting that, again, quote... Only people as poor and stupid as the Welsh would eat cheese and call it rabbit. <laughs> or that God. the closest thing to rabbit the Welsh could afford was melted cheese on toast. Or it may simply allude to the frugal diet of the upland Welsh. So the joke, inverted commas, is if you ordered if you know if you ordered rabbit in Wales, you just get cheese on toast. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, yeah, just they're so unkind. poor and so uh, yeah, yeah uncultured that they can't afford meat or know the difference. Uh, yeah, of what really meat really is. Um, it's very unkind. It is unkind. Yeah, yeah. It's no not the worst thing the British have done. The English no. done to the Welsh, no. but it's, it's up there. Yeah, this probably still rankles with a lot of Welsh people. <laughs> yeah. um, in fact, I was reading that very fact earlier on on the um, Welsh tourism website, and it relayed that fact. It said like it's it was mm. originally an insult and part of the English. Um, saying that, you know, the Welsh couldn't have rabbits, so they have cheese and toast, and it's had brackets, hilarious! <laughs> so how did it become rabbit? I think just over time, over time like, words get, lose their original yeah. meaning, a bit corrupted. Because I was reading a bit into into kind of that element of it, and um, there's an argument that when, it's obviously very delicious Welsh rabbit, Welsh rabbit, yeah. and as people were adapting it into other cultures and languages, uh, people like Escoffier um, and Americans, for an American audience as well, they deliber- They had heard of the rare bit kind of uh, terminology, but deliberately kind of doubled down on that element of it because they wanted to be clear that it wasn't rabbit. Right. And then that got kind of, you know, back translated into English right, right. menus and stuff and, you know, cookbooks where That's they were it. traditionally using rabbit um, mm. And lots of British commentators sort of mocked people who were calling it rabbit and saying right. it's rabbit. Uh, so a, a man called Brandon Matthews in 1892 said, few writers are as ignorant and dense as the unknown unfortunate who first tortured the obviously jocular Welsh rabbit into a pedantic and impossible Welsh rabbit. Mm. So he was very, obviously very uh, angry about uh, that element, yeah. Um, but it does obviously make sense that if you're not in on the joke, that you probably need a way of describing or you know, yeah, naming yeah, yeah, yeah. the item, uh, not to confuse people that yeah. they're actually going to be eating rabbit. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a well. In fact, there's another example. There's a few examples of uh, similar terms where words, where, where dishes have been given a jokey name, normally by the English mm. to put them down, <laughs> put the people down. There's another Welsh one, which is that. Um, Lava bread is known as Welsh caviar. Mm. In fact, 
is not caviar, it's seaweed. Yeah, and is that, but is that a pejorative one? Well, I mean, you could imagine that it could be. It could it? be, couldn't it? But it could also be one that's from the Welsh saying it's like, it's as good, it's as, as, good caviar. as caviar. It's yeah. But, uh, um, but I, yeah. Yeah. You can also imagine the English being like, look, they think they're eating caviar and they're just taking they're seaweed off a rock. Seaweed off a rock and boiling it into but a sludge. It's very good for you, apparently. Yeah, have you tried it? No, no. I've never tried it. I'd love to try uh, lava bread. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a seaweed that's kind of boiled um, into a kind of green mulch, mm. but then quite often it's then fried again and sort yeah. of served on the side of a, um, like a breakfast quite often, yeah, a Welsh breakfast or with cockles there. and things like that. It's called lava yeah. bread. It contains... No lava or indeed no bread. It's yeah. just seaweed. Yeah. Um, other examples from other countries. Again, normally dished out by the English, these, these <laughs> nicknames. Um, the Irish apricot, or indeed the Irish apple, grape, lemon, plum, etc. Do you imagine what that might be? Potato. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Scotch woodcock. Oh, a grouse or something? <laughs> well, no. So this is a similar one to the rabbit. It's like... So obviously it's not a woodcock. It's also not any type of bird. Oh. It's a bit random though. It is in fact scrambled eggs and anchovies on toast. <laughs> that sounds horrible. I like scrambled eggs and anchovies, but yeah. the idea of anchovies and eggs together does not. And also, I, I kind of even think this as well about um, uh, the Welsh rabbit thing. It's like you'd imagine it might actually be easier to catch and kill a woodcock than it would be to like catch anchovies. Pickle them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. the same thing like making cheese and stuff. It's like, he's going to catch a rabbit. Well, yeah, rabbit's exactly. Better, yeah. But I guess there's always... I mean, uh, cheese is better. Yeah, like the, they probably weren't thinking about that, the artisanry of making cheese, no, were they? They were probably thinking what is cheap and expensive in the local yeah. market. And how can we get a dig in at these <laughs> How can we get a dig in? Meat's always a, you know, traditionally expensive, isn't it? And yeah. Cheese, traditionally yeah. not as expensive. Um, there's also... Clever one. Sea kitten for fish. Oh, this was a, a, yeah, this was a renaming proposed by the people for the ethical treatment of animals in the hope of dissuading people from eating fish by likening them to appealing companion animals. When did they try and do this? Uh. I don't know. Probably, let's see. Because it feels like something that could 2010. be... 2010. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, it feels like something that could be quite old, but also extremely recent um, kind of nonsense. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it is very recent. It's definitely within the... It's in the age of nonsense, isn't yeah. it? 2010. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's my facts about ethnic dysphemisms. <laughs> um, another little... I don't know the words, if racial is the right word, ethnic stereotype about the Welsh I want to dispel. Mm. You may have heard that the um, urban legend that the Welsh word for microwave is popty ping. I have heard of that. I've actually told people that. Well, you need to read your words. Uh, well, I... I... Uh, right, this considers my formal apology to all Welsh people. You are a spokesperson for the Welsh yeah, race and um, please accept my apology. Well, that's all right. Do you want to know what the real word for it is in Welsh? Yep. A microdon. Oh, that yeah. sounds very futuristic. Pretty good. And also a bit like a dinosaur. Yeah. Small mm. Donald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a dinosaur. Or like yeah. a fossil. Yeah. You might find like an ancient... Yeah. Official state fossil of Wales is microdon. Yeah. On the subjects of Welsh food, 
and sort of historically uh, expensive, less expensive foods. Mm. Um, I was reading um, something on the website of a food writer called Carwin Graves, um, which is really interesting, actually. I'd recommend his website, carwingraves.com. And um, he's written about, he writes about how there isn't much of a um, sort of doc- documented history of Welsh food, Welsh cuisine and stuff. Mm. And he sort of wants to, or is in the process of creating one, I think. Um, but he had this to say about oysters in Wales in centuries past. He says this, uh, they were an affordable source of good quality protein for the poor. Um, as early as 1603, they were exported um, from Pembrokeshire to Worcester, Bristol, other towns in England and they were sold in Welsh markets um in so in 1652 in Carmarthen market the price of 100 oysters was a penny which obviously was more then than it is now but the same price as a dozen eggs or six pairs for 100 wow. oysters yeah imagine now 100 oysters would not be the same price as a dozen eggs or no, eight, six pairs more expensive anyway. yeah way more um uh, according to an observer a century later, Tenby oysters in particular were noteworthy for their great size. As many as many were as large as seven inches in diameter, which God. the author, the observer believed, put them among the largest in the world. Mm. Um, they shaped the town's character. A traveller in 1807 noted how they lay about in heaps, mountains of shells, the aggregate of many a century, forming a nuisance that would amply pay for removing. And and this went on for ages and ages, like in. Um, uh, the 19th, 20th century pubs in London would give away oysters for free yeah. just to encourage people to go in and have a pint. Well, in Manchester, Sinclair's Oyster Bar, yeah. of course, which is a an, an old pub that's got a history of you know, serving oysters. Yeah. doesn't anymore. Um, but still, to this day, a, a, a place for the, desti- the wretched. The <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and, yeah, Charles Dickens wrote, so in, in the Pickwick Papers, Dickens wrote about how oysters would... Um, a cheap food source for the poor, but who bought them from oyster stalls or wheelbarrows. And he wrote, he has the, Sam, the character Sam Weller says, poverty and oysters always seem to go together. The poorer a place is, the greater call there seems to be for oysters. There's an oyster stall to every half dozen houses. And this subject, mm. I'm going to make another diversion here, not Welsh related, but it's too good not to talk about. Um, it's the case of a chap called Edward Dando, not to be confused with <laughs> Edward Nando, the <laughs> founder of Nando's Nando Chicken Empire. Jill Dando, R.I.P. True. Yeah. Um, cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> anyway, um, Edward Dando, so we're talking 1803 to 28th of August, 1832, was a thief who came to public notice in Britain because of his unusual habit of overeating at food stalls and inns and then revealing that he had no money to pay. Oh, clever. <laughs> the old, the Never old... thought of that. That's a good one. <laughs> Although the fare he consumed was varied, he was particularly fond of oysters, having once eaten 25 dozen of them with a loaf and a half of bread with butter. Mm. Dando began his thefts in about 1826 and was arrested at least as early as 1828. He would often leave a house of correction and go on an eating spree the same day, being arrested straight away and appearing <laughs> in court within a few days only to be put back in prison. <laughs> His normal defence was that he was hungry. Mm. On at least one occasion, he was placed in solitary confinement after he stole the rations of his fellow prisoners. <laughs> in 1826, Dando began the practice of eating and drinking at different food cellars without being able to afford the meal. Although out of work, he refused poor relief, saying he despised it because he had a soul above it. <laughs> Dando was arrested for his acts of theft 
as early as 1828. Um, an appearance in court in April 1830, the arresting officer said Dando had been arrested two years previously after consuming two pots of ale and two pounds, nearly a kilogram of rump steak and onions, and then refusing to pay. Um, his April arrest followed his eating 0.79 kilograms of ham and beef, a half quartern loaf, seven pats of butter and 11 cups of tea. <laughs> On the day of his release, he walked into an oyster shop and ate 13 dozen oysters. That's 156 <laughs> oysters. That's, you know, that's kind of competitive eater levels of yeah. oyster eating. Half, yeah, exactly, yeah. And a half quartern loaf washed down with five bottles of ginger beer. Wow. The ginger beer, he said, because he was troubled with wind. <laughs> Which wouldn't help, I don't think. No. Um, he was arrested and appeared in court. He explained, I was very peckish, your worship, <laughs> after living on a jail allowance for so long, and I thought I'd treat myself to an oyster. <laughs> or 130-odd. Um, yeah. Most of his activity was in London. He also spent time in Kent, much of it in the county's prisons. When in Coldbath Fields Prison in August 1832, he caught cholera as part of a long-running pandemic and died. Yeah. Um, Charles Dickens compared Dando with Alexander the Great, writing, Alexander wept to having no more worlds to conquer, and Dando died because there were no more oyster shops to victimise. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, so I think we can say, well, we can drink to Edward Dando yeah. and say... He's very much a friend of the show. Cheers, Edward. What happened to oysters then? Because now they're very much a food of the rich. Same same thing happened with lobsters, right? I believe like yeah. what lobsters used to be very much a food of the poor. Well, okay, I, I know, I know, I know what happened in, with lobsters, at least in America. Mm. So, lobster, interesting enough. You're right; it did used to be considered a food of the poor, um, but. Before it was considered a food of the poor in America, it was considered luxurious food in Europe. Ah. So. In early French cuisine cookbooks of the 14th century, uh, confirmed that lobster had, lobster had very high status in medieval Europe. By the time of the European colonisation of America, um, lobster stock had fallen, and so basically, they were apparently off the, on the beaches in Massachusetts, um, lobster would just wash up in piles like two feet high. <laughs> so people could just go and take you know, so much of it. Um, wow, and. Uh, so basically, because of that, it was they didn't. Most people didn't eat it. They used it as bait for fishing, fertilizer, um, and eventually they would feed it to prisoners and um, indent and slaves, um, indentured servants. Who I suppose had a little bit more say of what mm. they were eating. Had clauses put into their employment contracts that they would not be served lobster more than twice a week. <laughs> God, awesome. um, but I think what happened in America is. Um, I suppose partly because of some people, eventually there were enough people eating them, whether they were like lower class people, prisoners or whatever, um, that the supply started to get dented a little bit. But also um, when the railroads came in and canned food came in, mm. lobster was one of the things that became canned and then people got a taste for it in other parts, in the inland parts of America. Yeah, okay. So the demand skyrocketed. Yeah. And then there wasn't... And also it's a lot harder to get the live lobster from you know the main coastline to mm. an inner city you know atlanta or yeah. whatever um when yeah that raises the price you know all, yeah all that sort of stuff. exactly and um so i imagine maybe something similar happened with oysters and safaris i mean I, I suppose with oysters nowadays it's like in a time when everyone wants like whatever they everyone wants everything like you know at the click of a finger sort of. mm. and with oysters it's like 
you can't really have that. You have to. You kind of have to be in the right place. Don't yeah. You? So yeah. like, I mean, obviously, you could get them inland, but it's not a very good idea. No. And it's not. They're not even very good. No. Um. So there's probably an element of that. Um. Having said that, every time you go on like a boat trip somewhere on the coast, they seem to be pretty abundant oysters. Yeah. Like there's loads of them. Yeah. Yeah. But don't know. Might be just a marketing exercise. Big oyster. Big oyster. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Tendy oyster. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, a little fact for you. Oh, yeah. The leek. We touched on leeks. Ah, now, that is the symbol of whale. Well, the daffodil, the leek. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, sheep. But those, those are the real Rugby. symbols of whales, aren't they? You yeah. think whales, you think leek. Yeah, exactly. Um, and... This that stereotype has existed for a very long time because uh. in Shakespeare's day, yes, he writes in Henry V um, about how it was an ancient custom, even by then, for a Welshman to have a leek pinned to his clothing to signify <laughs> that he was a Welshman. A full size leek. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty hefty, aren't they? They were. It must be a baby leek. You can't. You're not going to get a. You know, well. 30 centimetres long. Yeah. And you put, and you know, an inch in diameter. Yeah. Well, look, take up with <laughs> the Welsh Leak Association. Well, and Shakespeare. Yeah, and Shakespeare. Well, I think Shakespeare was probably not that clued into what Welsh people actually... Well, I suppose he would have, met, he would have known Welsh people, wouldn't he? Probably? Yeah, but, living in London. He was from, I mean, Stafford's not two, a million miles away from... Stafford, yeah. Stafford. It's true. Um, it's true. But also... He was also kind of, you know, he liked to make things up, didn't he? Ghosts. Well, that's what I mean. It's like it's all set, like, oh, set these plays in Italy. Yeah. You've never been to Italy, mate. You've never been to Italy. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so it's probably a similar thing with Welsh stuff, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, speaking of, you know, the... Well, actually, weirdly... Um, speaking of leaks... There's a bit of a movement going on um, for Welsh leeks to be given an appellation of origin um, thing. In fact, in 2022, uh, the Welsh leek is is officially protected, having gained protected geographical indication UK status. I think it's a UK thing. Yeah, because we we, uh, left the EU, so now we've got our own thing. Because of stupid Brexit. So following on from Gower Saltmarsh Lamb and Cambrian Mountains Lamb, Welsh leeks um, have protected status. However, leeks are not thought to be native to Wales. Oh. I think they were native to like maybe Mediterranean area or even further east. Um, introduced by... I mean, the Greeks and Romans were big on leeks. Right. So I think they probably brought them, brought them over. But... You know, that's all right. Yeah. Good for them. I'm just reading about this now. Uh, it's King Cadwalla um, of Gwyneth ordered his soldiers to identify themselves in battle by against the Saxons, a.k.a. the English, um, identify themselves by wearing a leek on their helmet. <laughs> <laughs> that's the I think that would from. undermine you in a battle. Well, yeah. So that's probably what Shakespeare took and uh, ran with. Yeah, um, yeah. No doubt. And that's what he, yeah. King Codwalla. When was King Codwalla knocking around? Or was he fictional? So he was doing that apparently in the 
650s AD. So right. from Shakespeare's time, that was pretty ancient, a thousand years earlier. Yeah, that is pretty ancient to be fair yeah. to it. Um, well, I like leeks. It's good veg. Delicious, yeah. One of the great, great types of onion. Yeah. The onion family. Underrated on this side of the border. Yes, well, Probably we, would, we would pin a... What do you pin to your racism. head over this side? Well, I'm a Welshman, of course, oh, so I'd probably leak. pin a giant leek. Yeah, but, I like um, a red onion if I was going to choose an onion family. So an onion, another thing from the onion family. Is that an English veg? Not necessarily. I'm just saying if... If you're a personal, pure Englishman, aren't you? Personal choice, I might go with a red onion pin to my helmet. Yeah, broccoli, I like Identify me. Well, that's not in the onion family, though. Oh, in the onion family? Yeah. Oh, right. Well, probably garlic, because then you're also warding off vampires. That's true, yeah. Um, double. Double. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, on the topic of strange folklore mm. customs, um, have you heard of the Mary Leward? No. I mean, okay, I'll explain what this is. And do you, do you know what wassailing is? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so it's kind of like a Welsh equivalent of that. So for people who don't know what wassailing is, uh, we'll probably talk about this actually when we do our yeah. West Country special. Spoiler alert. But it's essentially, it's a tradition around gathering the apples for the cider harvest. Uh, or yeah. The, to make cider with and singing and dancing well, that goes along with it. There's two... There's in the, within the wassailing universe. There's two mm. things basically. There's the orchard activity, yeah. which is all to do with the apples, and then there's um, house visiting wassail, which is where people go around door to door offering a drink from the wassail bowl, yeah, um, in exchange for gifts. Now, the Mary Leward, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but apologies if not, is in the second category. Okay. It involves terrorising people in their homes. <laughs> it um, doesn't sound like the same. <laughs> entailing the use of a hobby horse. Oh. Made from a horse's skull mounted on a pole and carried by an individual hidden under a sackcloth. Now, I have to show you a picture of this because it's just absolutely mental looking. Um, it looks like a horse skeleton has like come back to life and decided to make itself all pretty. <laughs> 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 it's so creepy. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. We'll so, have to get that on, on the social media pipes. So for it's the, a horse uh, for the listeners. A horse's skull um, <laughs> w- with like ribbons on it and a bauble in its eye, and um, it's being held on a stick. But you can't see that, but by a person who's hidden under a cloth like a big ghost. And basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> They, it happens around New Year time, right. Christmas and New Year time, um, and uh, people go around. They, they take this horse around to um, people's houses, knock on the door, and then um, they have like basically a kind of um, rap battle. <laughs> what? But <laughs> singing. So the horse has to sing a song requesting to come into the house, uh. and then the person at the door has to do another song saying why they're not allowed to come in. Right. Um, and then this goes on and on until the people in the house um, run out of reasons not to let the horse in, <laughs> at which point the horse enters the house and is allowed to eat and drink as much as it wants. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people not really sure why... <laughs> 
this happens. But um, it basically went, I think it went out of, you know, in classic church fashion. Mm. They disapproved of it and um, sort of shut it down a bit. Uh, sorry, I just read something quite funny. I'll, tell, I'll say it in a minute. Um, but uh, in the 19th century, in uh, the 20th century, sorry, it's kind of had a revival. And now people are doing it again as a kind of Christmas, New Year type mm. funny tradition. Um, the thing that just made me laugh is I was reading the, about the potential origins of the um, uh, Mary Lord, and it says, <laughs> in 1888, David Jones suggested its origins were Christian. It had once been part of the festivities of the Feast of the Ass, <laughs> <laughs> which apparently is a commemoration of the fly into Egypt for Mary and Joseph, but, um, you know, sounds like something else. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, on the something else in the ballpark of um, odd uh, folkloric Welsh traditions mm. to do with food, you mentioned the, the Welsh borders earlier. Yes. The marches. Mm. Odd place. Yeah. Um, and in that odd place originated a practice known as sin eating. Ooh, <laughs> scary. Um, basically, a sin eater um, is a person who consumes a ritual meal in order to spiritually do, spiritually take on the sins of a dead person. Oh, wow! So someone dies; they've got some sins. They bring yeah. someone else in to eat food, which then transfers their sins onto them. Oh God! Is that um, person like a? Are they an outcast of the community? The sin eater. Well, it? yeah. So traditionally, the sin eaters were sort of you know, people with no money or people in other, mm. kind of down and out in some way. Yeah, so they, I think they, they take made, the free meal. Yeah, and a bit of money, I think. And a bit of money. Um, so the first um, mention of it was a 17th century diarist called John Aubrey, who wrote on um, an old custom in, this is actually Herefordshire, so the English side of the border, but um, an old custom had been a funeral to hire poor people who were to take upon them the sins of the, of the party deceased. One of them, I remember, lived in a cottage. He was a long, lean, ugly, lamentable rascal. <laughs> um, the corpses were out of the house and laid on the byre. A loaf of bread was brought out and delivered to the sin eater over the corpse, and also a bowl full of beer, which he was to drink up, and sixpence in money. In consideration whereof, he took upon him all the sins of the defunct, the dead, yeah. and freed him or her from walking after they were dead. Wow. Um, and, yeah, there's a few similar um, accounts. A strange... This is Catherine Sinclair, 1838. A strange popish custom prevailed. I don't think it's that popish. <laughs> prevailed in Monmouthshire uh, until recently. Many funerals were attended by a professed sin eater, hired to take upon him the sins of the deceased by swallowing bread and beer with a suitable ceremony before the corpse. He was supposed to free it from every penalty for past offences, appropriating the punishment to himself. Men who undertook so daring an imposture must all have been infidels. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all just desperate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, again, as you can imagine, the church sort of clamped down on it um, during the 19th century. However, supposedly in uh, a local legend in, in Shropshire concerns the grave of a Richard Munslow, who died in 1906, said to be the last sin eater of the area. Oh, who had um, revived the customs. So unusually, he was not poor or an outcast, being a wealthy farmer from an established family. 
He may have revived the custom after the deaths of three of his children in a week in 1870 due to scarlet fever. Um, and, yeah, the reverend, the current day reverend, said, it was a very odd practice, but not been approved by the church, but I suspect the vicar often turned a blind eye at the funeral of anyone who had died without confessing their sins, a sin eater would you know, take on the sins, eat a loaf of bread, drinking ale, and they would make a short speech. I give easement and rest now to thee, dear man, that you walk not down the lanes or in our meadows, and for thy peace I pour in my own soul. Amen. So they thought by eating the bread and drinking the beer, it would have stopped them from walking from the grave down wow. the lanes okay. and meadows. Interesting. Good. I suppose you'll be fine if you get a sin eater. As a sin eater, you get a sin eater to come and eat your sins after you're dead, and then it just, you know, keep passing that on forever. Yeah. And everyone will be fine. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like quite a grim life to be a sin eater, though, because um, this is from a 1926 book, Funeral Custom- Customs by Bertram S. Puckle. <laughs> says, um, Professor Evans of Carmarthen saw a sin eater about the year 1825. Um, aboard by the superstitious villagers as a thing unclean, the sin eater cut himself off from all social intercourse with his fellow creatures by reason of the life he had chosen lived in a remote place by himself, and those who chanced to meet him avoided him as they would a leper. The unfortunate was held to be the associate of evil spirits given to witchcraft, incantations, and unholy practices. Only when a death took place did they seek him out, and when his purpose was accomplished, they burned the wooden bowl and platter from which he had eaten the food handed across, placed on the corpse for his consumption. Yeah, our old friend Taboo. Yes. Wow. Um, what an interesting uh, custom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all I've got. You got anything else to say? Nope. Yeah. Well, that's all right. We've done enough. Um, so on that note, uh, go, you know, get your sins eaten. Yeah. Um, Enjoy some lava bread and some... some bread, some rabbit. Cheese on toast. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.